Hello, I'm Viv Groskop, author, stand-up comedian, lover of my husband's sourdough bread, loather of literary snobbery of all kinds, and this is We Are Women. We Are Women is brought to you by Mint Velvet. Every month we get together to talk about being a woman, the serious stuff, the silly stuff, and all the other in-between, run-of-the-mill, taking care of business, trying not to make a total and complete mess of it all stuff too. This edition, we will be talking about The Good Life, not the ancient television programme, although I love Margot's style so much, but the idea of The Good Life. We want to explore the ingredients that go into a good life and the obstacles, big and small, that get in the way. In just a few minutes, we'll be hearing from the writer and performer Sarah Pascoe. I've really got into marmalade recently, and there's something about marmalade which feels decadent, which is, it's just orange jam like and I wouldn't consider jam decadent at all from the food writer and entrepreneur Bronte Oral you can easily hook it in a tent in the rain with your kids as I did this summer eating a packet of biscuits and from the journalist and sex educator Alex Fox I think clothes can really speak volumes very instantly Um, so I try and cheer people up and leave them with something to chew over and remember But before that, I'm joined in the studio by a very special guest. Elizabeth Day is an award-winning author and journalist. I have heard that she successfully pitched her first column at the age of 12, setting the tone for a glittering and garlanding career in journalism. Her writing appears everywhere from Vogue to the Radio Times and is about everything from celebrity interviews to social justice. Her first novel won a Betty Trask Award and her fourth novel, The Party, came out in July this year and has just been optioned as a television drama. Welcome, Elizabeth Day. Thank you so much for having me. I was listening to you describe all the other guests and I kept thinking, am I a sexpert? And, uh, but then luckily you introduced me as I actually am. You it's so nice to be anything here. anything you want, especially <laughs> as we're talking about the good life. Who wouldn't want to be a sexpert? Now tell me about this first column story. Is that true that you pitched a column at the age of 12? It is true. I don't know. I don't know if you were like this. But when I was a child, I think I was a lot more sure of myself <laughs> because you've been less knocked about by life. So you think, yes, I can do these things. So I grew up knowing that I wanted to write. And from the age of four, I knew that I wanted to write books. And then at the age of seven, I took the decision that I would be a journalist first to earn some money. So joke's on me there. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then I met a real life journalist and she said to me, the best thing you can do is just get experience. And I took this very literally and I wrote to editors of the local papers saying, I think what you really need is a children's columnist. And the editor of the Derry Journal, who was a lovely man called Pat McCart, said actually, that's a really interesting idea. Why don't you come and meet me? And my mother had to drive me (laughs) um, and take me to this man's house. And he was absolutely lovely and gave me a chance. And I had a fortnightly column from the age of 12 for about a year. (laughs) I never knew it for a year. Amazing. And they paid you? They paid me. The most exciting thing was getting paid. And I remember my first paycheck was for £72. It was a few columns in by that stage. And I spent it on a pair of uh, Doc Martin boots with purple laces. And I had a real sense of achievement. And it's the only time I've had a column, Viv. I mean, since then, (laughs) I've just been scrabbling to get a new one. Um, But the Derry Journal writing a column was really fun. And I wrote, I mean, this will date me slightly, but my first one was about Kylie and Jason and how they were assaulting the charts and I didn't think they were that very good. And I I was very opinionated (laughs) as a child. Again, it's one of those things. It's so interesting. I think the more 
you learn about life and the more you speak to other people and the more you grow older. I don't know about you, but I, I sometimes wonder if I have any opinions at all because I'll think I think something and then I'll hear someone say the opposite side and I'll be like, no, that's a very good point. <laughs> that's really interesting. I think that's the transition from being a journalist to a novelist because your novels are very rooted in psychology and how people's minds work and you love to be able to see things from both sides don't you I mean that's the whole point of your novel The Party yes thank you for saying that um I'm really you're welcome <laughs> I loved the book I'm very very interested in getting into characters heads and I think um one of female strengths is empathy I know there are lots of men who are very empathetic as well but I do think female novelists in particular have that quality of being able to see what motivates people, even if they act in unlikable ways. So we always set guests a question at the beginning of the show on We Are Women and we come back to the answer at the end. So I'll give you a chance to think about this. It's the things that are part of a good life for you, but that you feel slightly sheepish about. Yeah, I'm going to have to think about mine. I don't know if champagne... I feel like I already know mine. Okay, well, we can think about that. Now, last episode, Dolly Alderton talked about goals she had set herself to achieve before her next birthday. And lots of listeners got in touch via the Mint Velvet Facebook page or or by tweeting at Mint Velvet to let us know what they're aiming at. We'll hear just a few of those in a minute. But first, Elizabeth, what's the one thing you'd like to achieve by your next birthday? I said that I want to spend more time with my children. And I have actually achieved that a bit, I think, in the past few weeks. And Dolly said she wants to get good at laundry. Well, my next birthday is in a matter of weeks, um, and I think that might be a bit of a challenge. So if I think my birthday in 2018, what I'd most like to do is learn how to blow dry my hair. It's something I've never learned to do on my own, and it's a skill that I just feel I should have acquired by now. We always have beautiful hair there, Elizabeth. Are you paying for someone else to do it all the time? No, I do it myself, but I never think it looks very good. But thank you. Maybe I don't need to bother now. Hi, my name is Taylor Erickson. I am a new business and marketing executive. And by my next birthday, I would like to learn how to make pottery. I'm Kat Maidment. I'm a producer and I'm currently working on a potentially award-winning job, which I'm very excited about. And it will be done before my next birthday. My name's Georgia and I'm an office assistant at an ad agency. And by the time I reach my next birthday, I want to move out of my mum's house. Thank you, Taylor, Kat and Georgia. Coming up soon, my encounter with Sarah Pascoe. But first, it's time for My Life in Clothes, our feature which explores the way our clothes reveal ourselves. Alex Fox is a journalist and sex educator who, among many other prizes, has just been shortlisted for a Women of the Future award. As well as popping up all over the traditional media like, dare I say it, a rash, she presents the hit sex and relationships podcast Close Encounters and is an X-rated agony aunt for The Modern Man. We talked to Alex in a meeting room at her hip East London shared workspace. So I should warn you that during the interview, you can occasionally hear the clinking of bearded men making themselves matcha tea infusions in the background. Uh, I haven't had natural coloured hair since the age of 16. So for over half my life, I've been reaching for the bleach. I'm currently flamingo pink. Um, Prior to that, I was a neon yellow. Um, In terms of what I wear and the jewellery I choose and the shoes, 
I'm generally a colourful person. Uh, I'm not very good at coordination. I'm much, much better at clashing. Um, I'm definitely a believer in more is more is more is more. I'm usually dressed to the nines, if not the tens or the elevens. Um, I'm wearing a pink satin bomber jacket that has a bear's head on the back that says, I don't care. I bought this because I've recently learned the power of saying no and setting boundaries. I, I, I hope that I'm a very compassionate, empathic person, uh, but lately I've learned that sometimes you have to put your foot down. Um, and my foot actually is clad in my favourite Vivian Westwood shoes, uh, which actually have little toes, so they look like panther paws. I came out of a really toxic relationship just over three years ago. Um, he was lying to me about where he was going, who he was seeing, uh, and I found other women's makeup on my clothing. It was a really awful time. Uh, one of the highlights of that, that relationship, when it was in happier times, was that he bought me a pair of Vivian Westwood shoes that I really loved. Uh, after we split up, I bought the same pair of shoes in three different colours and an additional leather pair. And it was my destiny child, Beyonce style moment where the shoes on my feet, I bought them in triplicate. <laughs> Um, whenever I'm choosing things to wear, if something has a visual sense of humour or something innovative about it in terms of the, the fabric, the technology used to um, manufacture it, uh, if it makes an ethical or a political statement that I agree with, I'm into it as well. I think clothes can really speak volumes very instantly. Um, so I, the way I dress, I try and cheer people up and leave them with something to chew over and remember. Recently... I dated someone who happened to mention that he liked me in spite of the way I dressed. Uh, and I was really offended and also quite upset by that. Uh, but it made me reflect on the fact that um, the way I dress often, I think people mistake it as a cry for attention. And it's not. I just I genuinely dress in the way that I feel comfortable. It's a reflection of my personality. And I was chewing this over and thinking about how actually throughout my life, whilst sometimes dressing in a, in a naturally loud fashion can invite people to speak to you and be your friend and it's always a talking point. On the flip side of that, it has made certain situations in my life difficult. Dressing as myself is sometimes perceived as unprofessional or not sexy and um, I'm sort of proud of myself for dressing as me, uh, even through the times where people have put pressure on me to dress like everyone else. I've brought along a little ring in the shape of a frog prince, which sits atop my middle finger. Uh, but I bought this little frog ring um, for myself on a trip to Tokyo last year to remind me that I might have to kiss a lot of toads before I meet my own handsome prince. Uh, and I made what for me was a bit of a pilgrimage to Harajuku uh, in Tokyo, which used to be known as the centre for individual dressing. There were lots of crazy off-the-wall um, tribes of people who would dress in, in different avant-garde ways. And I was rather sad to find that when I visited last year, all of that had gone. Uh, and I chatted to a few Japanese people who told me that Harajuku culture has become uh, largely homogenised. Things like Instagram mean that everybody uh, is taking their visual cues uh, from others globally, but they're all sort of wanting to look the same. And, yeah, I found this perhaps rather inevitable, but a, a bit sad. Um, the elements I need in my life for it to feel good... 
our friendship, material things be damned, it's the people that you need in your life. Having said that, I am Northern and just the, the, the simple joy brought to me by a cup of tea. Uh, I recently moved house and one of the best presents I got, the best housewarming gift, was a catering pack of 1,500 Yorkshire tea bags. And I loved it so much that I actually put a pillowcase over it and used, I slept with it as my pillow for the first couple of days because the smell of tea was so comforting to me. I felt like that helped me bed into my new space. It was like the tea version of Feng Shui. It was delicious. So um, tea and people to sup it with. Thank you to Alex Fox. Elizabeth, I'm still traumatised by her saying, I found other women's makeup on my clothes. I didn't even want to have to think about that. Awful. But what I loved was when she was talking about the shoes that she bought with her own money, you know, that Beyonce thing of what I'm wearing, I bought it. What's the thing for you that makes you feel that way? I'm really inspired by that interview, actually. And um, I went through a divorce a couple of years ago And so I had to move out of the marital home. And my sense of achievement comes from the fact that I rent my own one-bedroom flat now. And I've done that through my own work and through writing words for which I'm paid. And the combination of those two things, it's the culmination of my lifelong ambition to be a professional writer. But also it's very important for me, and this for me is a huge part of a good life, is to have a place that I can feel safe and call my own and that makes me feel calm and cocooned to be in it. Um, So I think that's really the thing. Every time I walk into my flat, I feel that. Mm, That's better than a pair of Vivian Westwood shoes. Although Vivian Westwood shoes is a pretty good thing to have as well. (laughs) For me, it's my necklace that I'm wearing, which has got a V on it. I love that necklace. Which I, it's from Les Nereides, and I bought it when I finished writing my book, the Anna Karenina fix because it was so difficult to write and afterwards I wanted to buy something just to mark it. I have to say that actually with every book advance um, I buy something that is physical and tangible and that can remind me of that book and for the party I recently bought one of the most absurd things I've ever bought but I love it so much. It's a bag in the shape of an owl (laughs) Um, and it's by Burberry and it's absolutely tiny and you can't fit anything in it apart from a phone and maybe some keys. But I was in Heathrow Airport and I walked past the Burberry window and this owl was staring out at me in the same way that a teddy bear (laughs) might have done when I was sort of four. And I bought it and it was absurdly expensive, but I don't regret it for a second. And every time I wear it, someone comments on it. I think it's so important to have these little things to mark achievements, isn't it? It's wonderful. Now, Alex was talking there about how hard it can be to dress as yourself, to be yourself, to really feel that you're expressing yourself. And I know that you've talked in the past, Elizabeth, about how writing fiction was a release for you in a way of owning yourself that didn't come with your previous work. How was it for you when you felt that you were able to assume that identity and be the novelist you'd always wanted to be? I don't know if I am the novelist I've always wanted to be yet, but I'm definitely getting there. But my... uh, So The Party is narrated by Martin, who's obviously a man. But the previous book that I wrote was called Paradise City. And it was the first time that I'd written a male protagonist. And I wrote someone called Howard Pink, who is a billionaire, a clothing magnate. And he was someone who had this immense sense of self and entitlement. And as someone in my daily life, I don't think I am very arrogant. (laughs) And I struggle sometimes with anxiety and self-belief. 
And actually, the act of writing Howard was incredibly liberating because I realised that that was within me to sort of imagine that character. And then that made me look at my own life and the choices I was making. I would write an email to my editor at my newspaper and I would say things like, oh, I'm so sorry to bother you. I just wondered if I could pitch this idea and it's probably rubbish. So sorry to bother you yes, with my I'm general just, existence. Exactly. I'm like, I'm just embarrassed at how rubbish I am. Like that was the general tone of the email. And when I started writing Howard in Paradise City, I stopped doing that in emails. I would write an email, I would draft it, and then I would delete all of the justs and all of the sorries. And it had a massive impact on me because it was just that act of clarity. I was like, well, if I can write this character convincingly, then I can apply that to my own life. And why am I not doing that? There's a great privilege that comes with being a novelist that you can inhabit lots of different people. And through doing that, you get greater clarity about your own life. So we're here in Sarah Pascoe's amazing new flat and we've just taken delivery of a very beautiful chair. Everything's all new and wonderful. Um, here with Sarah Pascoe, Sarah is a writer, stand-up comedian and actor who's never far from our screens, whether she's appearing in smash hits such as W1A or The Thick of It or wiping the floor with the opposition on panel shows like QI. Her latest stand-up show, Lads, 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 was a huge and hilarious hit at this year's Edinburgh Fringe. And although she insists that stand-up is where her heart is, and I know it is, that hasn't stopped her creating a stage adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, which was recently performed for the first time, or writing the utterly original and award-winning book, Animal, the Autobiography of a Female Body, which came out last year. One critic, after seeing her in Edinburgh this year, described her as a woman reborn at an all-bets-are-off time of her life luxuriating in her skills, enjoying her comedy. Hello, Sarah Pascoe. Hello. You are that woman. Yeah. You yeah. are at a real moment of success. Does it feel great within that moment? Does it feel weird? I think like most people, and obviously women included in that, I think most of the time you're always focused on the future and what you're supposed to be doing or your new deadlines. So I don't think many of us ever have the time to kind of go like, oh hey, things are going okay. <laughs> I just, you just want to work as hard as you can. And sometimes, actually, when things are going all right, you think, okay, really take advantage of this because it has ups and downs, you know. Hmm. But Happily Single is really yes. what the show is yeah. about yeah. and what you're about right now. And yeah. there's a line in your show where you say, we're not Twixes, yeah. we're Pepper Armies. Yeah. Uh, our theme in this podcast is the good life. Yes. How important do you think a relationship is to the good life? I, well, it depends absolutely on how kind of healthy that relationship is. And so many relationships, friendships and otherwise can be toxic and actually make your life a lot harder. And I think that's why the first thing in terms of the relationship with yourself, and in terms of a wholeness in that sense, then means that you have much healthier relationships in general. You're much better at setting boundaries or realising when people are taking too much from you. Or I think it kind of all emanates out from a relationship with you. So we've gone quite deep already here. Uh-huh, I like okay, this. No, it's, no good. Okay. it's good. It's good. Do you want to talk about Twixes? Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um I read an interview where you were talking about how supportive young women can be of each other and you said, What I so admire about teenage girls is that they're so sure of their own minds, they're absolutely adamant and moralistic. I guess the most important thing is not to let anyone take that away from you to try to keep that as much as you can in your life. Uh, I wonder if you were sort of talking about yourself there Mm. and there's an aspect of your teenage self that you like to keep alive. 
Well, I, I have the opposite. So I was much, much more opinionated when I was 15 than I am now, which is crazy because some people would think I'm really opinionated now. But when I was 15, I was very, very black and white about the world and what was wrong with it and what should be done. And I think I've become so much more equivocating as an adult, but which isn't necessarily wrong. You know, when very small children really, really hate smoking. <laughs> and there's something I find so charming about it because you go, you'll be the same. You'll get drunk and have a fag in the garden. <laughs> and someone else's child will be going to you, no, actually, it's very bad for you, Auntie Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it says something about it I find so heartening. Like, yeah, I remember when I just saw the world that black and white. But there is this manifesto quality to your work isn't there and this idea of wanting to be dictator oh yeah yeah if yeah. you could be in charge of yeah. everything yeah. what would you want to change um i i think we should have much more uh, empathy led education as children i think empathy is a muscle a lot of the problems we have aren't because anyone wants other people to hurt it's because they don't understand things that are different to them if you teach children in a certain way they understand the world differently and but the trouble is it's an expensive thing to do as in like it's not a lazy fix. I think you should be put in charge right now. No. So let's make this happen. <laughs> no, I don't want <laughs> to do it. <laughs> but it's interesting because yeah. a lot of what you write about, especially in Animal as well, it's about drawing on your own experiences. Mm. And I know with Animal, you weren't sure how much of yourself you ought to put in. Yeah. And some people told you not to put in your yeah. own experiences. How did you decide in the end where to go with that? A kind of visualising how I'd feel if I had to still talk about the same thing in 30 years is how. What I have to do is go, when I, if I'm 55 or 60 and someone in an interview goes, hmm, you had an abortion at 16, didn't you? And you talked about it in that book. I was thinking, will I then go, God, I wish I hadn't told them that. And I actually thought, no, I, I would, I, it's so important for me that, that I'm not ashamed of it. And the test for me was if I still don't know quite how I feel about that event, they're the things that didn't go in. And then also the other thing was... I was really honest about lots of stuff with my family, but there's still loads of stuff I didn't put in because it's not my information, if that makes sense. I need my parents to die. Then you get a book. <laughs> then you get the really <laughs> honest book <laughs> when they're dead. Where did you come from originally in all of this? Did you start off on stage wanting to be a stand-up and then it's grown into all different kinds of writing or did you originally want to be a writer? Um, I think now, and I think it's something that probably is true of lots of writers, I realise that I've written my whole life. Like, I have always written diaries, pages and pages and pages. is how I've always dealt with my emotions and my thoughts. And reading as well. Like, when I was... We were seven, and they tested us for our reading age, and it was mine was 14. Um, I've got just, like, my pleasure centre in my brain goes off with words. So writing never feels like work. I would have done it if no-one was watching it. And I always have been, like, before I wrote stand-up, I was writing songs and poetry, and it's just like, blah, 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 always just vomiting out of me. But with the performing side, I always wanted to be an actor, and, and, it was, and, and stand-up came accidentally out of trying to be an actor, as in, well, I wasn't doing very well at acting, and I was doing open mic nights to stay busy. So it's this accidental thing, but it's, a really, it's an accidental thing that I'm really so glad about because it, is, it really is like a version of yourself and you get paid to do it. Mm. Yeah. And what other ambitions do you have left unfulfilled? Or are you just happy oh. to let things happen? Like yeah. writing a stage adaptation of Pride and Prejudice yeah. is probably not something you would have been on your no. bucket list, no. but there it is. Well, and these things just yeah, come up. They do amazing. come up. I was so lucky. I never necessarily wanted to write an adaptation, but I've been, I used to do playwriting courses, like straight after university. So I've always wanted to write for theatre and I'd like to write an original play now. And also I want to write a novel. So I do, with writing, I do have ambitions of things that I want to do. And I tend to 
I don't drift around actually. I tend to have kind of like aims for the year. Like last year, I, kn- I knew I really wanted to host live at the Apollo. And I, and I hosted live at the Apollo straight after Edinburgh. I'm quite hard on myself. I'm not someone who like punches the air. Like, oh, I'm doing so great. And so I really have to concentrate and go, no, don't tell yourself where you went wrong with this. You wanted it. You got it. You should be, um, if not happy, <laughs> then like calm. <laughs> I'm proud. Yeah, proud is really hard, I think, though. Because I, I, it's almost like it feels like hubris. The second you're like, oh, I, I did so great. I, it's, it's really odd, but then, yeah, I find pride really hard. I felt proud when I watched Pride and Prejudice. That was, so that was probably one of the first times. Our theme for this podcast mm-hmm. is the good life. Yeah. What does that mean to you? What are the ingredients for a good life and the things that might prevent you from having one? Um, in terms of prevention, if you don't have... I don't think you have to have a lot of money, but I think when you are poor, everything in your life is so much harder. So any kind of luxury, whether that is... I've really got into marmalade recently, and there's something about marmalade which feels decadent, which is... It's just orange jam like and I wouldn't consider jam decadent at all but there's something about it that makes me feel like I'm just having five minutes to myself with some toasted bread and some marmalade get over it <laughs> so and so, and, so and, and this is the thing about this is what I was going to say so the first thing is in terms of um not having money when people don't have money there are tiny things you have to allow yourself and they are your pleasures because you're having to struggle so much anyway. Um, in terms of like a good life and pleasures, for me, reading fiction is such an important thing. Having a bath with a book where that, like, that's your time and the door is closed and you m- might stay in there for 25 minutes and they just transform your world. Like you do a good book, you go completely somewhere else. And I always feel like I'm not a spiritual person at all, but I think that sometimes books find you exactly when you need them. Quite often that character will be going through something or living a life and you go, oh, that's so relevant to me or my auntie Susan. And there's quite a lot of truth in fiction. And so I think it's one of those things that sometimes we forget. I speak to a lot of people who go, oh, I just don't really read anymore. And I think it's sad. And, I'm re- and again, I'm lucky because I don't have children, so I do have time to have half an hour baths twice a day. But um, so I would say, yeah, reading and marmalade. And I think... I hate making gender generalisations. I think women are really, really hard on themselves. And I think we think that we should be hard on ourselves because we have low self-esteem and we battle with that and what we deserve. And just every mistake is a learning experience and everything, there's a whole journey towards becoming who you want to be or getting what you want. And all of the, the way you have to be kind to yourself, no matter what it is that you're going for. And also I think yoga is incredible. And what do you find funny? What makes you laugh? I really like um, Broad City. I like I like a lot of television, actually. I love The American Office so much. Um, and in terms of, like, I love watching stand-up comedy. I'm always watching these lineups, going, this is the best lineup in London, and I just get to stand at the back for free and then say hello to the comedians, and they pay for my wine. <laughs> like, it's the best job. Well, long may your wine get paid for, Sarah Pascoe. (laughs) It's lovely to talk to you. Thank Thank you. you. Lovely to talk to you. (laughs) Our thanks to Sarah Pascoe. 
Sarah talked there about turning the spotlight on yourself. Um, Elizabeth, do you feel that the good life is the examined life, that it's important to explore yourself and know who you are? Or can we get a bit self-indulgent? I definitely think it is. I think it's important to have (laughs) self-worth. And that might sound like an obvious statement, but I think that's something I've struggled with a lot of my life. And I think you can only achieve that by being honest about yourself and your strengths and your weaknesses and being as kind to yourself as you are to other people. And that's still very much a work in progress for me. But um, I think that's important. But where I would be a bit wary is that um, I can overthink things. So I think you can examine your life, but you don't want to get caught up the creek without a paddle of just endless self-analysis and uh, worry about what's going to happen in the future because that's just one thing you can't control so I think a balance of self-worth and acceptance that things are beyond your control is the key to a good life and I'll let you know when I've got there (laughs) yes well I'll let you know too Uh, you mentioned before that you struggle with anxiety and self-belief which I think are things that lots of us struggle with from time to time I'm wondering as well if something Alex said earlier uh, in in this episode about boundaries, that's another way that you have to protect yourself. In your journalism, are you careful about what you reveal? How, How do you set boundaries to make sure that that doesn't become an anxiety for you? That's a really good question. Um, I think I've learned, like Alex, the power of saying no, and that people don't judge you in the way that you think they're going to judge you for it. If anything, they respect you more for it. Um, I think I've learned, you know, I don't write an enormous amount of personal journalism, but when I do, it has to be something that I really authentically believe myself and that I authentically believe will be helpful for other people. So um, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago about struggling with infertility and having a miscarriage. And I got amazing responses from that because it came from a place of total truth and sincerity. And that's my guiding principle. Now is the time when we get some expert insight into our chosen theme. And when it comes to the good life, there is really only one kind of person we could call on a Scandinavian. Bronte Orell is Danish. She's a food writer and the co-founder of the incredible cafe, shop and online store that is Scandi Kitchen. Her latest book has just come out and is called North, How to Live Scandinavian. Bronte, thank goodness you're here to show us how it's done and you've even brought some bits and pieces with you. We've got some amazing looking buns here. Oh, they're incredible. Is that cinnamon buns? Cinnamon buns, yes. (gasps) They smell incredible. Why do you think we Brits, why are we so obsessed with the Scandinavian secrets of happy living? I think there are several components and answers to this. But I think if I have to say one word, I would say simplicity. Scandinavians like everything to be simple and straightforward. And I think in these busy lives that we have, we all sort of long for a bit of simplicity in our lives and a few rules maybe as well. Yes, I think that's definitely why I'm attracted to it and also the buns. Uh, <laughs> I want to feel like I'm a bit of an expert in this now. Uh, how do we tell the difference between huga, lika, mm-hmm. am I saying these things correctly, and lagom? Can you explain these phenomena? I can. They are three very different things. So let me start with huga. Hygge mm-hmm. is the feeling you have when you appreciate the moment while you're in it. Oh, 
God, I it's need that. that. <laughs> it's really <laughs> that simple. It's a definition than the one we've been sold, isn't yes. it? Which sort of cosiness. And mm. log fires. and yeah. Because yes. they're part of it, but yeah. you don't need that. You can easily hook it in a tent in the rain with your kids, as I did this summer, eating a packet of biscuits. It's really nice to do that. But you also seek um, uh, validation from other people that you are actually sharing that moment. So while you can hugo on your own, um, we can hugo right now. We'll probably share some food and we'll go, oh, this is really hugo-lit, isn't it? And then we're creating the moment where we're sharing that experience and we're appreciating it. What about liquor? Liquor is happiness. But it's a, it's hard to just translate a word that has, has such a strong cultural meaning. Liquor is being satisfied with your lot. So when you're happy with what you have, um, you are lugly. Lugly, I'm lugly. Yeah. You're feeling lugly and lugly. Lugly, lugly. Lagom, what about that? It's a Swedish word. Lagom means not too much, not too little, just right. Uh, the happy medium. Yes. Yes. So it's only having one cinnamon bun rather than two would be lagom. Everything can be lagom. So if a Swedish person says to you, okay, would you like some coffee? Would you like milk in your coffee? Yes. How much? Lagom. Because mm. That person will know what Lagom means, right? To drive a Volvo, you're not being flashy, but you're also not driving a beaten up old car. You're driving a Lagom car. It's the one that works. It's absolutely sufficient and properly. There is, we don't have flashy people. We don't have flashy fashion. You never find, you know, extroverts, crazy designs. They're always very functional. But the flip side of this, though, it's interesting, is I know I've read some Scandinavian writers talking about the pressure of conformity, that this is a very, I hesitate to use the word average, but it's all about not standing out, isn't it? Mm -hmm. What do you think is is difficult about this Lagom and and the pressure to be Hugo as well? It It must get quite annoying sometimes if you just want to sort of create a mess or be very noisy. Yeah, I think you can step outside, um, but of course, things like that has consequences. But let's go back to the that original meaning. Quite frightening when <laughs> you said that. <laughs> no, but the, the original meaning of lagom is lagered om, and it's from the Old Norse. So the Vikings would sit with perhaps a, a mead, a bowl of mead or whatever, and it would have to last the whole way around. With all with the whole group would have to have a bit of mead. So you take a little bit, so there's enough for everyone. So look at the Scandinavian societies. We don't mind paying taxes. People think we do, but we actually we don't, by and large, mind paying 52% income tax because that money goes into the big pot in the middle. That way we can share out to those who need it and, and continue to have this very fortunate, massive middle class, very few poor people and very few rich people. So everybody can go to university and they don't have to pay and you get 480 days parental leave and, you know, wow. stuff like that. So people, it's a mindset and it's ingrained in our culture since the year dot, really, that that is how we live. So, yes, you, you can step outside, but you tend to sort of go, well, actually, it's probably for the greater good that I'm, you know. So do you live in the UK now? Yeah, I do, yeah. And you have children? I do. So how do you instill in them all of those values and core beliefs in... The society that we live in, which is, seems to me, from what you've just said, remarkably less sorted than Scandinavia. It's hard. It's always hard because my children, are both, they're both born here, they're eight and ten now. And of course, they're not going to get every nuance of our culture. I'm Danish, my husband is Swedish. But I have heard them try to teach their friends in the playground about Lagom. So, you know, I'm, I'm hopefully succeeding so far. What aspects of British life do you think we could export? We don't seem to have anything like Hugo that's really 
taking off across the globe. Well, I mean, you have Hugo here. Every single pub is Oh, yeah, Hugo-ly, but we've stolen know. that from the Danish. What do we have that's British that you think foreigners could learn from? I do think in Britain you champion entrepreneurship. You champion individuality in a way that perhaps you, we don't in Scandinavia as much. Mm. Bronte, what's the definition of a good life for you? For me... There are so many things that make up a good life. I think time to be and time to reflect and time to be with your family and be with the people you love has to be number one. Um, I don't know if you agree, Elizabeth, in order to write, you have to have that time to reflect and to just be yourself. I think if you work 18 hours a day, you can't really do that. So I totally agree. Uh, I, I think sleep is yeah. incredibly important and I don't even mean that as a joke. I, no? I, I really need to get enough rest to feel calm enough to find a space creatively that I can be in and write. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I went to bed yesterday. My children were like, my husband's away at the moment. And my children were like, what are we going to do tonight? I'm like, I'm going to bed. I will see you later. <laughs> it's eight o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and just once in a while, just turn off the light and go to bed. It's lovely. And how important is food in your definition of the good life? She said reaching for the bun. Well, Hugo has a lot to do with food. Please, can I try one? Yeah, go for it. And I've brought some ginger biscuits as well. (gasps) Oh, they look gorgeous. And uh, I brought some Swedish chocolate too. It's about the family again. I think we're very family-orientated nations, all three nations. Mm, Can hear Elizabeth eating this bun. So delicious. So good. I just went straight for the squidgy centre. It it's delicious. the best bit. Mm. <laughs> That's not very Scandinavian of me, though. It's not very Lagom. Str- no. <laughs> you can have the edges, guys. <laughs> We've practised being Lagom another day. Bronte Orel, thank you so much. You're very welcome. We're coming to the end, so it is time to reveal your guiltiest good life ingredients. And I've realised, thinking about what Bronte was saying, that my guilty good life secret, and it's not much of a secret, is shoes. And I do not have Largom shoes. I have not found the happy medium of shoe ownership. Yeah, I have about... 800,000 pairs of jeans, approximately, (laughs) because I'm constantly buying a pair thinking this is going to be the pair that changes my life. This is the pair that people talk about in style profiles, which does all the things you want it to do and you can dress them up and you can dress them down. And I just still haven't found those jeans. And then the other thing that I would say is reality television. I am a massive reality television nut. And um, I like to claim it's sociological television. (laughs) And it's actually great (laughs) research for novels because you get a whole insight into how people behave that you might not meet every day of your life. So um, although that's a guilty pleasure, I also do genuinely think it performs a useful function. That's it for now. Please tweet at Mint Velvet or come to the Mint Velvet Facebook page and tell us what your guilty pleasures are or what you're determined to achieve before your next birthday. And whatever your goal is, I do hope it includes subscribing to We Are Women via Apple Podcasts, iTunes or SoundCloud. And of course, rating and reviewing us so that others can discover us and fulfil their as yet unknown lifetime goal of listening to me and my lovely guests. We Are Women will be back at the end of November. But in the meantime, my thanks to guests Alex Fox, Sarah Pascoe, Bronte Orell and Elizabeth Day. We Are Women is a Whistledown production for Mint Velvet. The producer is Kate Taylor. I'm Viv Groskop. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.